Welcome back to the Gold Factor Podcast, your guide and gateway to a life of purpose and fulfillment. I'm your host, Bernadette Gold, transformation and high performance coach, here to lead you through another chapter of my audiobook, The Crooked Path to a Charm Life, a clairvoyant medium's journey to embracing her spiritual gifts. Now remember, each episode of season one is a new chapter in the book as we traverse the realms of the seen and the unseen. So let's dive in and continue our adventure together. It's time to think bigger, feel deeply, and act boldly. Chapter four, Radical Healing. Knowing I needed to heal myself, I dove into my childhood. Youngest of three children, I was raised by my dad for most of my childhood. I didn't have a great relationship with my mom. After years of battling mental health issues, suicide attempts, doctor-administered shock treatments, and psychotherapy. Serving in Vietnam, then a Marine Corps drill instructor in San Diego, Dad was gone a lot during the first five years of my life. We had a live-in housekeeper, Dicey, since Mom couldn't take care of us by herself. Dicey, a sweet, older German lady who ran a tight ship, was great at getting us to school and caring for our basic needs, but without affection. As a result, I spent a lot of time by myself before entering kindergarten at a Catholic school in Anaheim, California. I was never really alone, though. My imaginary friends always surrounded me. There were no happy memories of my mom when I was a child. I remember being afraid of her, not liking her energy at all. I learned to be as invisible as possible to avoid her yelling rants and physical abuse. Growing up in a volatile environment, showing emotions was not safe. My maternal grandparents constantly argued, yelled, and screamed. Crying was not allowed, no matter what. I remember being told repeatedly, you have no reason to cry. If you don't stop, I will get the belt and give you a reason. Emotions and self-expression were something I could only do in secret. I felt everything profoundly, but had no outlet to express what I felt. I had no one to talk to either. The authority figures and caretakers in my life were not safe to confide in. While visiting my grandparents one day with my mom, I was sent to a dark guest closet as a punishment because I was crying. My grandfather locked me in the bowling ball closet. Squished between bowling balls and shoes, I had to stay until I stopped crying. I could hear the adults sitting around the table talking. That punishment didn't make me stop crying. It made it worse. Emotionally exhausted and scared, I eventually fell asleep. Not being seen, feeling unimportant, and even forgotten was normalized. Hours after I was locked in the closet, my grandfather woke me up. He was holding back laughter as he grabbed my arm to pull me out of the closet. I hope you learned your lesson, he said coldly. When I finally emerged from the guest room, I learned 
that everyone had left and gone out to eat. No one noticed they had forgotten me. It wasn't until they returned home that someone remembered I was still in the closet. There were no apologies, and no one checked to see if I was all right. All the adults, including my mom, made excuses about leaving a five-year-old home alone. They blamed me for missing out on dinner. I went home with my mom without being fed or offered dinner, hungry and hurt. The only thing I learned was that crying was a punishable offense. From then on, I didn't cry in front of other people. I recall trying to understand and make sense of why my mom seemed to hate me so much. After yet another verbal assault by her, I prayed to God to help me understand what I had done. Receiving nothing from my prayers and feeling completely alone, I prayed that God would make me blind so I wouldn't have to see the hatred played out in front of me. I told God I understood that I would still feel things and see things in the other realms, but I couldn't deal with seeing people being mean to each other anymore. I didn't understand the repercussions of that prayer until I was 16 years old. I was given prescription eyeglasses in the first grade and did everything to destroy every pair I received. My parents eventually stopped buying new ones. The kids in school called me names like Four-Eyed Freak. All the names couldn't have hurt as bad as watching the evil adults did to one another. Without glasses, my eyesight slowly declined. Finally, when I turned 16, I went to the eye doctor for contacts. The doctor informed my dad that my vision was 20 minus 400. That meant what people saw at 400 feet distance, I could only see at 20 feet. He also explained at the rate of decline I was having, my eyesight would either continue to worsen until I was blind or plateau when I hit 18. As we drove home, the reality hit me hard as I saw the day I prayed to be made blind in vision. In that instant, I asked forgiveness for begging to be made blind. I didn't ask for my eyesight to be fully restored. I just asked that it stop declining. I reasoned that although the horror I witnessed was hard to deal with, there was also a lot of beauty to see in the world when I looked for it. When I turned 18, my eyesight was rated at 20 minus 450 in each eye, remaining the same since that day. Although I can't see without the aids of glasses or contacts, other than what is directly an arm's distance away, I can see. The lesson I learned about prayer, belief, and God's abiding love to give us what we ask began to sink in. I was more careful about asking for things without thinking of the long-term effects. Between the ages of four and five, I suffered recurring bloody noses. Heat and activity would start nosebleeds that lasted for hours. A few nosebleeds resulted in emergency room visits to get the blood vessel in my nose cauterized. The doctor said blood vessels were close to the surface, and eventually I would grow out of it. Unfortunately, I couldn't control it. 
The nosebleeds made my mom very angry. I remember having to lie on her lap while she squeezed my nose for a long time while having to listen to her displeasure and anger. Usually, my dad was the one that pinched my nose until the bleeding stopped, but on a few occasions, he wasn't around. I prayed it would stop bleeding so she wouldn't have to take care of me. I clenched my fist, trying to keep my tears away. I knew if I cried, she would be furious. I just wanted to disappear. Since the age of the internet, I came across a few interesting articles while piecing together spiritual meanings of disease and illness. One by Louise Hay discusses how nosebleeds are related to feeling unseen. She says it's a need for recognition. Feeling unrecognized and unnoticed, it's crying out for love. In other articles, others believe that nosebleeds are a side effect of spiritual experience. They can also occur to people who have an inherited ability to have paranormal or spiritual experiences. It can also be caused by the sudden changes in blood pressure, caused by intense spiritual experience. As the emotions are extremely high during a spiritual experience, the emotions can cause the blood pressure to rise extremely fast. That itself is dangerous, and the sudden rise may cause hemorrhaging. To this day, I'm not sure what caused those nosebleeds, but both explanations resonate. As I grew up, the nosebleeds stopped. The body's wisdom is a beautiful mystery, communicating or manifesting our thoughts, feelings, and unconscious beliefs. Mom never said, I love you, and never expressed care or concern for me. I thought there must be something wrong with me since my mother didn't love me. As the years went by, every time I was around her, that's the feeling I had. Weakness, sickness, or any emotions were cause for violence from her. So I tried my best to be healthy, strong, and non-emotional. One weekend, we visited mom's boyfriend at a marina where he was restoring his boat. Walking a long plank up to the deck, I was terrified of falling into the water. Once aboard, I realized I had to use the bathroom. Afraid to tell her as she constantly got angry at my tiny, inconvenient bladder, trying to hold it in for what seemed an eternity, I told my mom I needed help getting off the boat. She repeatedly told me to walk down the plank and find the portable potty. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't make my six-year-old self walk that plank alone. So instead, I shivered in the corner, unable to hold it any longer. Finally, terrified but soaked, I whispered in her ear that I hadn't made it down the plank. She went red, grabbing a beach towel to wrap around my waist. Then gripping me firmly by the ear, she tugged me down the plank, forcing me inside the car. As we drove away, she screamed uncontrollably, blaming me for ruining her day. I sat quietly in the back seat, choking back the tears, afraid of further punishment. 
Many years later, mom was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. As a child, those labels are meaningless. I carried the abuse, blame, shame, and guilt well into my adulthood. Understanding the why behind her behavior helped, but more inner work was necessary to reprogram the patterns locked into my body, psyche, and behavior. Chapter 5, Sent to Paradise. Constantino, who was nicknamed Uncle Goose, was one of my favorite uncles from Hawaii. He was visiting California when I was still in preschool. Uncle Goose was confined to a wheelchair after becoming paralyzed from a fall from an airplane wing. Uncle Goose, my mother's uncle, was also very sweet, fun, and joyful. His energy made me smile, unlike the energy of my grandparents or parents. He had a great sense of humor, and he loved joking and playing. While I don't recall much of the events that led to his departure, I remember feeling good with him. I didn't know that my parents were planning on a divorce. So without Dicey around to take care of me, my mom and grandparents decided to send me to Hawaii with him. Uncle Goose lived in a basement-style, one-room apartment at the end of the Honolulu airport. As planes took off and landed, it created a loud, unsettling environment. While I loved him, I wasn't sure what was happening or why I was there. I was scared at the constant noise. Even worse, I felt abandoned. As a five-year-old, I thought I had done something wrong. Neither my brother nor sister were banished, just me. No one talked to me about the trip, how long I'd be there, or why I was there. After a few days spent in Honolulu with Uncle Goose, the adults realized he couldn't care for me. My great-grandpa, Zoilo, lived on a little farm on Oahu in a tiny North Shore town called Kahuku. My uncle and aunt who lived in Honolulu picked me up from Uncle Goose and delivered me to the little farm. Kahuku is beautiful to this day, located just a short distance from Turtle Bay. It was a sugar mill town filled with locals that worked there. Back in the early 70s, it was very rural. Great-grandpa didn't have indoor plumbing or electricity. I hadn't met him before, but he was to be my caretaker for several months. Grandpa Zoilo was a short, tan Filipino who spoke little English. I followed him around with little communication. He had chickens and small black puppies. I vaguely remember my time with him, except for how I felt and what filled my days. One of the first things I was told was not to name the chickens or the puppies. That didn't make sense as a child, so of course, I gave them all names. They were my new friends in a lonely, strange place. Feeding the chickens was fun, and the puppies and chickens followed me around when I played outside. Using the outhouse at night was terrifying to me. I quickly learned how to hold it so I wouldn't have to go out at night. If I did, I knew the chickens and dogs were out there. Thankfully, the weather in Hawaii was pleasant, 
The property wasn't far from the shoreline. It was beautiful and peaceful. If it weren't for the circumstances, feeling abandoned and punished, I probably would have enjoyed it. Angels were with me, yet I don't remember much of what they said. I was afraid I was sent away because of them. Their presence was undoubtedly felt and seen, but more at a distance to respect my fears that communicating with them is what landed me in exile. Finding ways to get through the day, I made friends with all the animals. I fondly remember great-grandpa gave me sugar canes as a treat. He was always busy doing something as I followed quietly behind him on command. One night, we attended a big party. Kids were running around, men gathered in a circle, and a lot of yelling, joking, and storytelling. Great-grandpa disappeared with one of the roosters before grabbing my hand and taking me to the circle where a noisy crowd gathered. Before I could make sense of what was happening, I witnessed my first cockfight in horror. The rooster, who was my friend, got mutilated by another rooster. No one seemed bothered by it except me. I was screaming and crying while great-grandpa laughed at me. Cockfights were a pastime for him and the locals, but to me, it was traumatizing. I cried myself to sleep that night, no longer trusting the only person that seemed to be looking out for me. Aside from the loss of my rooster friend, puppies were disappearing as well. Only three remained, Trying to make sense of what was happening around me without anyone to talk to was pointless. I just needed to behave, play with my animal friends, and stay out of Grandpa's way. I have questioned the rationale and sanity of my family when I look back on that time. What the hell were they thinking of sending a child to live with a person with paraplegia? When that didn't work, who felt an older man who didn't speak English could care for a child he never met? Was I in trouble? Was I abandoned? Why didn't my brother and sister get sent away? So many questions, but no one bothered to answer them. I was very young, and that whole time is very foggy in my memory. Recalling those pivotal events is both funny to me and heartbreaking. As a mother, I have no idea what the hell the adults were thinking. Thankfully, I had a great imagination, and my imaginary friends watched over me. I asked my parents a few years back about it. They were less than helpful. Mom said she believed she was having a breakdown, and Dad was in San Diego training Marine Corps recruits. Astonishingly, I am not a complete mental and emotional basket case. I tried regression therapy, but I could not remember all the details of this time and different traumatic events. Sometimes the human brain stores that stuff away where it's inaccessible. My time there finally ended after what seemed like forever. But it was only about six months when my grandparents showed up and took me home to California. 
arriving home while still having no explanation of what I just lived through. Everything was changing. My parents were getting divorced, and we would live in a small two-bedroom apartment with my mom. After Hawaii, I was afraid to cry, laugh, or even speak. I retreated within myself, fearful of what would happen next. I used telepathy a lot to talk to my guides, angels, and God. Sometimes I had entire conversations in the privacy of my mind with someone I could feel but couldn't see. The skill of telepathy has been a gift that continues to serve me. In 2014, I returned to Oahu to visit my cousin and my past. Kahuku is still small, but quaint. The Kahuku Country Club has replaced Grandpa's home, a little-known golf course where mostly locals play. It's gorgeous there. But in my five-year-old brain, it's dark, scary, and lonely. In some ways, that was a reprieve from the craziness of my mother's moods. It was a chance to see a faraway land and meet new relatives. Had I known why I was there, it may have had a far different feeling. It was, however, just another experience that led me to believe I was in the way and that nobody could love me. While visiting in 2014, my cousin Bernie explained that black dogs are a delicacy in the Philippines, much to my horror. She laughed as she put the pieces together of my time with great-grandpa. When I told her about how the puppies just disappeared one by one, she explained the old ways. As I searched my memory, I couldn't remember going to a market with him. We ate eggs from the chickens, I remember that, but not actual grocery shopping. I know we didn't have big meals at all. Bananas, fruit, and eggs were most of my meals. I have no animosity towards my great-grandpa. He was kind and tolerant. I probably wouldn't have known if he corrected me, as we didn't speak the same language. He smiled a lot, worked hard, and let me tag along, which was better than how my mother treated me. He remarried when he was 72, taking a 22-year-old Filipino as a wife. They had two children, younger than me, that are my great uncles. He lived a full life in his little piece of paradise. All my cousins speak fondly of the time they spent in Kahuku. I wish I had had the same experience as them. Now that my parents were divorced, life became all about survival. There was no time for being a kid. Thankfully, divorce meant Catholic school was no longer affordable. I hated going to Catholic school. The teachers were nuns. They were mean, impatient, and far from loving. I seemed to be the target of my teacher in kindergarten. I can barely remember school, except I spent a lot of time in the corner after being hit with a paddle or ruler. Physical, mental, and emotional abuse was all I knew from the authority figures in my life. Angels, spirits, and animals were my only allies. I hated the world I lived in, where I constantly felt hurt and sad. I prayed and prayed that God would send someone to save me. No one showed up. 
I prayed that I could sleep and wake up in heaven with my spirit friends. Somehow, I survived. I owe that to my allies in the subtle realms. Music was important to my mom, so at five years old, I learned to play acoustic guitar. She had a sweet young woman from Argentina teach me to read music and play. I loved playing music, and I loved her. She treated me like I was special. I looked forward to the lessons. She stopped charging my mom because she knew we couldn't afford much. During one Christmas holiday, just before my birthday, she was leaving for a visit to Argentina. She gave me a present and promised to bring me another one when she returned. Mom hated the way she was with me and how I wasn't afraid of her. She interrogated me about my feelings for her, forbidding me to see her again. Happy I had the song she taught me until I was heartbroken when my brother broke my guitar. Through all of these events, I learned I was not to speak of what I could see. Early in life, bombarded by messages to keep my sensitivities and gifts to myself, were given. The priest from our church visited as I sat on the floor watching cartoons. Angels made it clear that I needed to listen to the conversation between mom and the priest, but I was to stare at the television as if I couldn't hear them. From that visit on, I kept all my unseen friends a secret. They were with me through all the terror, silently holding me in love. I quickly learned to the world and the church, these gifts were considered evil. From then on, any time I heard or saw spirits when people were around, I either stared off in the distance or looked at my feet to avoid attention. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Gold Factor Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the book. If so, follow the podcast and please leave a review. Share it with your friends on social media because you never know who it might help. I invite you to join my Facebook community to connect with a tribe of heart-centered, ambitious people like you. Let's support each other on our paths to purpose and success. You can visit the link in the description or go to facebook.com forward slash the gold factor. I'll see you in the next episode. Be blessed and be a blessing.